Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care Parent and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the trial of the week. We review a landmark study in critical care history, and uh, it's time for our last uh, September trial of the week. Uh, and we are view- reviewing an absolute landmark study today. Uh, one you could argue is on the Mount Rushmore of important research in the critically ill. And I'm joined by Brandon Hobbs to review the 1996 New England Journal of Medicine article, a comparison of low-dose heparin with low-molecular weight heparin as prophylaxis against venous thromboembolism after major trauma. So we set the scene, what was care like prior to this study. Uh, Then we dive in, we dissect this study. We talk about the dosing regimens, uh, how they monitored for VTE. Um, We also then go to where are we now, right? How long did this study impact care? What is the guideline recommended regimen now? Uh, Do we have an idea of what other centers across the country are doing and much, much more? Uh, So sit back and enjoy the last trial of the week episode for September which starts right now. So very lucky to have Brandon Hobbs with me. Uh, Brandon is a surgical critical care clinical pharmacy specialist and the PGY1 residency program director at Orlando Health, Orlando Regional Medical Center, uh, and newly inducted a fellow in critical care medicine. So excited to experience the uh, celebration with him at the uh, SCCM Annual Congress. You can reach out to him on Twitter at Winter Hog. Brandon, welcome. Thanks for joining us. How are things? Things are great, Nick. And uh, thank you very much for uh, having me on the show. <laughs> so I I have to ask, I think I'm probably familiar with what your, your handle is referencing, but for those who just heard your Twitter handle and have a confused look on their face, explain explain what that means. Yeah, so it's kind of like a combo. Um, so here, here's the thing. I, I grew up in Northwest Arkansas, and, um, you know, I am a Razorback fan, you know, till I die. Uh, we, we grew up about 15 minutes from the University of Arkansas, uh, the campus. And uh, so, you know, I've had a southeastern journey since, you know, since essentially – uh, graduating high school, ended up in, here in Orlando, Florida, and uh, actually live in Winter Park, Florida. So that's right above Orlando. And uh, so when I was got on Twitter, it was it wasn't for academia or anything at all. <laughs> yep. I, I didn't even know that existed. You know, um, I got on there to follow. You know, the Razorbacks and like you know the news since I was all the way in Florida, you know, it's kind of hard to get news or whatever. And so I knew I could do it through Twitter. Yeah. And so when I was making up my name, it was uh yeah, just a combo between where I live now, winter park. So that's the winter. And then the hog is, uh, you know, kind of, like I said, being a hog fan. And it's also kind of, you know, talking about me just kind of be being alone on an Island. One of the only Razorback fans in central Florida, um, you know, I I feel like that's kind of how it always has been, because I've 
I was at the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy and then, you know, residency in Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, just a lone Razorback fan. And it's, you know, I lived in the South for two years. Like the football is different down there, right? Like if you're in Atlanta and you're an Arkansas fan, right? That's, that's, uh, that means blood on Saturday, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't have a, you know, a whole lot to say, you know, when I was in Georgia or Tennessee, you know, those fans are, are loud enough. And, uh, me being a number of one, usually when we're around watching the game, I just, uh, I kind of know my role and, uh, you know, I, uh, if, if we're losing, I take it well, uh, and if we win, I don't say a word about it. <laughs> well, this is a uh, this is a woo pig suey podcast, so don't worry. Uh, let's go, let's go raise. Oh, I love you, that. Yeah. You and you and Melanie Condeni from MUSC. Those are these are you're the two Arkansas fans that I know. Um, so now, listeners, right? We we've established on these episodes we're in the trust tree. Honesty always the best policy. Longtime listeners will remember um, Anthony Hawkins and I um, at a conference um, talked about the Orlando airport and having conferences in Orlando. Uh, you heard from the intro. That is where Brandon uh, works, resides just right outside of. So, Brandon, the floor is yours. Why? Why is Orlando awesome? Why, why am I wrong? What does everyone get wrong about the city? I want to give the platform for you and, and all of the, is it Orlandoites? Is that the, what's the preferred nomenclature there? I think it's Orlando. Uh, um, no, that makes more sense. Okay. Yes. For I, you. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Um, all right. So, I mean, this is a pretty complicated question, but to, to give you kind of the, the, the down and, and dirty, I totally agree that MCO Orlando International Airport might be the worst airport in the nation. That's so the worst. Oh, I'm, I'm I will never defend that. I you know I would rather go out of the little um, airport out in Sanford, uh, Florida, than than go to MCO. Um, to really like Orlando, I think you have to get out of the touristy area. Um, I've I've been to the amusement parks over and over again. Um, you know I have. Two young kids, so um, those aren't my favorite places either at all. But you know, if you do come down to Orlando, you're in Central Florida, then you know, kind of venturing up, you know, in my park, Winter Park. I mean, it's a beautiful little city, a lot of great shopping, um, excellent restaurants. Uh, you know, Central Florida is also just great for uh you know outdoors if you can manage the heat but you know if you're a golfer like i try to be then you know you can golf 365 days of the year although golfing in august is 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 not or or all of summer but july and august are just brutal out there so um you know a lot of outdoors a lot of nice breweries as well so you know i i think Orlando in itself is, you know, kind of a big foodie town. So uh, I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge foodie, but I know there's a lot of good restaurants and, and I do like beer. So uh, <laughs> the, the breweries, there's a whole uh, central L trail that you can, that you can follow in central Florida. So those are some of the things, I guess. So it almost sounds like the, the tourist area in Orlando is like if you live in Nashville and it's Broadway or you live outside of Vegas and it's the Strip, right? You're only going there if someone's visiting or something like that. And otherwise, you're typically kind of staying, okay, that makes sense. All right. 
We we cleared yeah. the floor. Shout out Orlando. The Orlando wins. Um, now let's get into our last trial of the week for September. Right, a comparison of heparin and anoxaparin for trauma VTE prophylaxis. So, Brandon, as we set the scene, kind of starting out historically speaking, where would you rank this in terms of like high quality trauma literature? Like, is this a like a top five study all should be familiar with going into like a Tromical surgical ICU, maybe a tier below, none of the above. Where do you think it kind of stands? No, I get, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I think every clinician in the specialty of trauma, surgical critical care, they can probably relate to what I'm about to say. Um, if there was one study, one study and one study only that you could give your learner coming on rotation to read, you know, I think it'd be this one. Um, the topic itself of VT prophylaxis and trauma is one of, one of the most important topics that you could have um, for this population. And this study right here, it's fundamental to, you know, your learning and your understanding. Um, you also mentioned quality of the study. Well, you know, this study is not without flaws. I mean, I, I'm sure we'll get into, you know, some of those and, and, and some of the more significant ones. Um, but really, no study is flawless. Um, even with the flaws, this study, it, to me, it easily ranked into the top five uh, and could be argued that it's at the very top. But when you kind of add in the clinical impact of the study, I mean, this study changed practice in a global context for well over 20 years. So when you factor all of that, you know, in together, it's hard to say that it's not that is not number one in the trauma literature. And it's one of those studies that um, personalized medicine hasn't necessarily taken us completely away from this, right? Like crash two, you'd probably put in that top tier, at least things you talk about, but now with tags and some of those other things, right? We may not use it as much as, as that study did. And this is something where, you know, the dose might be the same, but right. Like VT prophylaxis and that's what hospitals get paid for. That's how V like FTEs get created. So, um, important things. So yeah, I like that you set the stage because I completely agree. This is a, a, a must for, for everyone to hear now prior to, and well, and one other quick thing, actually, you, you know, you mentioned the, the study itself. I'm actually like, when you go back and look at these studies and we'll talk about, they, they recruited in the early nineties. I'm also like impressed. They're able to do these randomized double blind placebo controlled trials in the early nineties, right? Like that's even challenging now with the things we have, let alone, we don't even have internet, all those things. So, uh, I think some of these, they, they're without, they're not without flaws, of course, but I think some of them age like some fine wines. Um, when you look back at the work of the authors. So prior to this study, right? We're talking, this is a trauma patient population. What was the patient population that had the highest quality data um, with low molecular weight heparin and VTE prophylaxis? Yeah. So, you know, thinking about this question, um, you know, I, I think if, if we took, you know, all clinical pharmacists and, and it, this was a multiple choice question, um, I think a lot of people could probably get this right. And, and, you know, I'm going to say it in a positive way. It's, it's the specialty that, um, is the most creative with their VTE prophylaxis to, to say it nicely. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and that's, that's orthopedic. I mean, you know, yep. these guys, they, they use warfarin, they use aspirin, they use heparin, they use anoxaparin, 
you know, so, you know, if you had to guess who that would be, that would be, that would be my guess and your guess. And, and you'd be right. It's, you know, it's orthopedics before, um, before this study came out. What a great reference. If you've ever worked with orthopedics, so you'll have one person on 81 BID of aspirin and the other will be on one and a half to two INR goal with Coumadin, right? Same procedure, same. Yeah. It's just, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. Um, yeah, so, very creative. So let's, uh, let's get into the actual uh, trial of the week here, uh, published in September 1996 in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled A Comparison of Low-Dose Heparin with low molecular weight heparin as prophylaxis against venous thromboembolism after major trauma by Geertz and colleagues. So Canadian single center randomized double blind trial enrolling patients from 1992 through 1994. Uh, and this single center level one trauma center in uh, Canada. So uh, the patients that were included, right, they experienced major trauma. They had to have an injury severity score of nine or greater. And then they got further stratified according to the presence or absence of a lower extremity fracture. Uh, there are more exclusion criteria, but key ones to note would be likely death within one week and bleeding or coagulopathy as uh, seen on imaging or labs. So patients are randomized into one of two groups, either unfractionated heparin, 5,000 units sub-Q every 12 hours, or enoxaparin, 30 milligrams sub-Q every 12 hours. So they were both started within 36 hours of injury and continued for up to 14 days. Um, and then of note, uh, enrolled patients all received uh, venous Dopplers between day 10 and day 14 to assess for a DVT. Now, the primary outcome, right, of course, that makes sense, we're bleeding into this, was proven venous thromboembolism. So uh, 344 patients were randomized, right, and talked about the stratification according to that lower extremity fracture and um, setting the scene for what kind of patients these were, um, most common injury, lower limb orthopedic trauma, most patients were male in their late 30s with an injury severity score of 23. So... Uh, Brandon, fill any gaps. What did I miss or mess up? And then uh, let us know what this Canadian research team ultimately found. Yeah, thanks, Nick. You know, uh, before I kind of get into the results, more into the results and everything, um, one thing about the methodology that, that I'll point out is that um, they all did receive, uh, you know, some sort of surveillance between day 10 and 14, and they did get venous dopplers done in the patients that were symptomatic like throughout but when they looked at their primary outcome they actually used contrast venography uh between day 10 and 14 um which is going to be a little bit different than the than the duplex ultrasound and uh you know we can talk a little bit about that later but mm -hmm. uh, i wanted to kind of get back into the results and, and and talking about the patient population itself so you know, you mentioned these trauma patients had a median injury severity score of 23. We're talking about severely injured trauma populations. And, you know, and that's really reflected in their hospital stay as well, um, each group being a little over three weeks. So these are, I mean, these are your higher highest risk patients that you're really going to see. So, you know, working out their study population, you know, they found the sick ones. They found the ones that that have the higher highest risk for DVT. One thing I'll also note before the primary outcome is that um, a significant number of patients, more than 30 in each group that was that was actually randomized 
to, to their groups, they weren't included in the final analysis uh, because venography wasn't able to be done. So patient had their leg amputated or, you know, there's a lot of different various reasons that they gave, but if they weren't able to get the contract venography, they were taken out of the final analysis. So that brought the patient population or the, the study population down to 265 patients and 136 heparin, 129 noxaparin. Now, the good stuff. So the primary outcome of all DVTs, they found 44% uh, DVT uh, in the heparin group. So 60 out of 136 patients in the heparin group actually had a DVT. Uh, compared to 31% in the noxiparin group. So 44 versus 31%, you know, this equated to a relative risk reduction of 30%, and it was statistically significant uh, p-value of 0.014. More importantly than just all DVTs, they reported out the rates of proximal thrombosis. So now for all you listeners at home, Proximal essentially means that the thrombus is either in the femoral, the iliac, or the popliteal vein. Um, essentially, what we're talking about is above the knee DVTs. And the reason why this is significant, because there's a much higher risk of the clot embolizing, resulting in a PE. And, you know, that's the real danger that we're talking about. So um, what they found for the proximal vein thrombosis. Proximal vein thrombosis occurred in 14.7% in the heparin group versus 6.2% in the noxaparin group, uh, resulting in a, even a, uh, a higher risk reduction of 58% with an oxaparin. Again, this was statistically significant and clinically speaking, a more important outcome than overall DVTs. They also had subgroups. I'll just mention one subgroup. Um, risk of proximal DVT in patients with lower extremities was also in favor of noxaparin relative risk reduction and that was even larger at 73 percent now for the switching gears and talking more about safety outcomes um, the the major safety outcome was bleeding and events were minimal uh, for both groups in fact only six patients out of the entire study population of 344 experienced a major bleed one of them was in the heparin group, five were in the noxaparin group, so 0.6 uh, versus 2.9% respectively. Uh, this did not have, or this was not statistically significant, but, you know, was it powered to be? No, it was a secondary outcome. Um, but, you know, they described, to their credit, they described every single one of these major bleeds in the actual uh, article. And, you know, some of them um, don't seem to be too major. Like some of them didn't even require packed red cells to be transfused. And then some just sound like, and the percentage is there too, when you have severely injured trauma patients like this, some of them are going to bleed, whether they have chemical prophylaxis on or not. It doesn't matter. And uh, so you can make your own, I guess, judgment calls on that. But, but to me, I mean, this was really minimal, uh, you know, significant bleeds that, that were found in each group. Other outcomes that we might want to talk about, uh, PEs. There's only one PE found in the whole study. Um, that was happened to be in the noxaparin group, but there weren't any fatal PEs 
um, in either group. So clearly, like this was these were landmark findings at the time, right? You you mentioned the you know almost a third relative risk reduction and no real difference in major bleeding, low major bleeding. You would you you even say so? Um, obviously, practice like changing now. As you mentioned, as we kind of went through, the thing that always stands out to me that I want to ask you, why do you think they used the Q12 dosing for heparin when you know, most of us, I would say, are familiar with the Q8 heparin dosing regimen for VT prophylaxis, right? There's that chest study. It was mainly medical patients, but it showed Q12 and Q8 were similar. But um, why do you think they, why do you think the authors chose to do that here? I, that's a great question. So this is, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of, of the paper and um, for, for good reason. Um, I, this first one, before I get into really the main reason why I think, I'm going to give you a kind of an excuse answer. Love that. Um, and this is, and this is back in, you know, when they did the study back in the nineties, uh, heparin Q12, 5,000 Q12 hours was a lot more common than it is now. Now we hardly ever see it. I call it, you know, my great grandma dose. Um, and, and that's about the only time that, that, you know, I'll use it is, is, uh, you know, for, for the, you know, the little old ladies or the my sweet great grandma. ladies. Yeah. Marge is yeah. her name, right. Or Esther. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's her, you know, and that's the only time you even think about it. Right. So, um, I think they thought they could kind of get away with it because it was a little bit more common. Um, even though we know trauma patients are hypermetabolic with an augmented renal clearance, not a good choice, but, you know, so that's kind of the excuse reason, but, you know, the big reason is that they wanted to do a, a, a double blind study and really raise the, the quality and eliminate bias um, of this study. And the only way to do that was to dose the heparin at Q12. You know, this is like one of those, you know, great examples of, you know, of, of a study when you have a, a, a student maybe or, or any type of learner on rotation with you and you want them to kind of start thinking about how to critique and, um, you know, kind of uh, recreate study design and methodology. I mean, this is just a great example to use because, you know, you always say, well, you know, could you double blind it if you do the heparin QA and anoxaparin at Q12? And it, you know, no, it's 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 not practical. It's not practical at all. Um, so you know, that's the big reason. I like you had a double blind study. Um, Anoxaparin was used both 30Q12 and and 40 daily. You know, previous to this study. Um, but when you're talking about the trauma population, doing a daily dosing for the half life of anoxaparin and uh, a trauma population that's at high risk and hypermetabolic and, you know, like I said, with augmented renal clearance and, you know, there, there wasn't much of a choice other than doing the noctoparin at Q12. Yeah, I think it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, but, you know, doing like a double blind, essentially like a double dummy um, study. I think if you're kind of the, the researchers or the authors and you see that as a huge barrier to this study being successfully completed, right? At a certain point, 
you you may have to make a little mini sacrifice for the greater good. So yeah, I mean, this is such a good study. Definitely minor minor critiques. Um, now let's talk about let's talk about some of the ancillary care, right? And you you pointed out. Um, thank you for correcting me, by the way, that they received the surveillance imaging, right? So explain like what like the angiography Dopplers. What does that mean? And then. Was this surveillance imaging and things, was this a common practice in, in the 80s and 90s at that time? Yeah, another really good question. So it sounds like, you know, we're, I feel like I'm always, you know, back in the 90s. You know, back in, <laughs> back in the, we're going to the future back soon, in, I promise. We're, rocking, we're, we're rocking getting back in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, uh, surveillance imaging, so, you know, one part of your question question surveillance surveillance imaging with duplex ultrasound um it actually was more common than it is now that was actually when the studies were actually being done to see if it had had any effect uh or you know uh affected outcomes any what were the outcomes they were looking at most of the time incidents of of dvt or not dvt but um what what they're basically trying to find dvd dvts specifically proximal DVTs. Um, and if they did find the DVTs, then, um, you know, the patients would get uh, full anticoagulation um, and prevent any pulmonary embolism. So, um, you know, which are, are fatal. So that was kind of, you know, the point for, uh, you know, doing surveillance, um, you know, on a weekly or biweekly basis or, or something like that. Um, but when they actually did the studies and looked at surveillance duplex ultrasound versus uh, not no ultra or no surveillance, there wasn't really a decrease in um, in the incidence of PEs. So that was kind of dropped. Even the guidelines they don't recommend uh, routine surveillance anymore. The only time surveillance is ever even um, recommended or suggested are in the patients that are at very high risk that can't receive chemical prophylaxis. That might be the only time that you do a duplex ultrasound. Now, this study went even further. They went a step further than duplex ultrasound. They actually used contrast venography to identify DVTs. And this is an invasive procedure where essentially dye is shot into your foot or uh, your lower leg. And then x-rays, special x-rays are taken to identify the DVT. And, and this is definite uh, or definitive. It's gold standard. Um, DVTs really are not missed um, with contrast venography compared to duplex ultrasound. Um, the sensitivity and specificity is essentially 100% with contrast venography. Um, and, you know, compared to duplex ultrasound, that's going to be a lot lower. Um, especially with duplex ultrasound, pretty good at, you know, identifying proximal, uh, vein thrombosis, but not as much, you know, in the, in the, uh, lower part of the leg or below the knee. Um, but when you're talking about contrast venography surveillance, which is what they did, nobody, nobody, nobody in practice does that on a regular basis. I've never heard of that at all. Yeah, they, this was a step up, 
right? In terms of the the monitoring for it. And I appreciate you setting the scene, right? Because um, that was, right? It was Doppler Thursday and everybody in the unit got Dopplers, right? And that was just that, that was the the era, right? I think it's, it's always when you're looking at these topics, kind of interesting to go back and see how care has, has kind of progressed and changed because in theory, it makes sense, right? We know the, the, um, issues and the downstream effects why we work so hard on venous thromboembolism that the idea of maybe prophylactic surveillance right it makes sense it just didn't necessarily work out um so let's let's talk about right landmark study um and where are we now with this so when the authors were designing this study when you look in the statistical analysis section right they estimated the event rates in approximately 45 to 50% essentially uh, incidence of VTE. So is what are our rates now that we have an increased emphasis on VTE prophylaxis? Because I'm guessing it's not 45%. Yeah, so, you know, first of all, I think this is a great question. And it's really hard to say. Um, and I hate to, you know, ever give this as a as an answer, but uh, you know, it really depends, but let's kind of, you know, cause the question has several layers. So let's kind of, you know, talk about, you know, some things that matter. So if we're talking about, you know, DVT rates, what's going to matter? Well, we know one thing, um, the higher the injury severity score. So the more severely injured a trauma, trauma patients that you have, the higher risk of VTE. We do know that. Um, so if it kind of depends on what, you know, subset of trauma patients are we looking at? Are we looking at all trauma patients that, you know, come to your trauma center versus, you know, patients that are severely injured with high ISS scores that are, you know, ICU admissions, you know, before they go to the floor, you know, all that will matter when you're kind of talking about, uh, DVT rates to the, um, credit of this study, you know, they, they use really sick patient. We were talking about it. ISS score on, on average was 23, like for both groups. And in, you know, a lot of people say, or you look at the scores, anything above a 15 is, uh, you know, a severely injured trauma patient. So that's one thing, you know, it's kind of like what trauma patient, uh, population are you talking about? Um, and then the other thing is, are we talking about just documented DVTs versus all the DVTs, um, you know, even the, the asymptomatic ones that, you know, only, only God knows about, um, <laughs> that our patients aren't able to tell us and we don't do surveillance anymore, um, or anything like that. So, um, you know, now it's symptom based diagnoses, uh, or along with like physical exams. So a lot will kind of, you know, compared to this study, which found 44 members and 31%. Um, you know, the rates are going to be a lot lower than that because they found every single DVT that there, that there was in their patients. Um, so I guess putting a percent, I think it's hard, but if I had to give you a range of, you know, it's, you know, trauma patients that are moderate to severe, I would say probably about 10 to 30%. And that's like all, all DVT. Now the percent diagnosed and actually documented, it's going to be far, far less than that in the, with a lower range. Um, you mentioned like our, our early use of uh, VTE prophylaxis now, and most trauma centers do emphasize 
VTE, chemical VTE prophylaxis within 24 hours. And, um, you know, we really have to, we, or we really have this study to actually thank for that. So back in the 90s, patients wouldn't get D, uh, DVT prophylaxis for days uh, sometimes because of, you know, the quote unquote bleeding risk. Well, all the patients in this study were started within 36 hours. So not only did we get the uh, preferred medication for VTE prophylaxis and the starting dose as practice changers, we also got um, early start of anoxaparin is safe in our severely injured trauma patients. All patients within 36 hours, they even included spinal uh, injury patients. Of course, they left out TBI patients. That's a whole different topic. But, um, you know, I think that just adds another layer to this study that sometimes you don't think about is that, you know, they were really, uh, you know, pushing the envelope on start times too. And, and this was the beginning of that, of how we do things now. I love that you pointed out, right? Like almost 20% of them had a head or spinal cord injury. So the idea in the early nineties of everyone getting started VT prophylaxis was in 36 hours. Uh, that wasn't, it, it was much harder to try to actually make that happen. Um, uh, in practice, right? We're much more progressive, I think, with starting and understanding the risk of thrombosis versus bleeding. Um, I think that's a really good nuance because this is a, right, that, that's a, uh, that's like when you when you get asked a question and you're like, mm, I know that answer, but I need to like ask three more. That's like yeah, the idea of like, I know that answer, but <laughs> yeah. you almost have to give like five caveats because there's so many things to consider. So I thought that was a, a really yeah. good, a good answer. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. What, what do the guidelines actually recommend? What's our guideline recommended regimen for, for prophylaxis of against VTEs? Yeah, this is a lot easier question. <laughs> um, <laughs> the question before, um, well, you know, now we have, we actually have two recent guidelines, um, which is awesome. Um, because we didn't have anything for a long time before, uh, and everybody was just kind of, you know, out in the desert by themselves, you know, trying to figure out is 30Q12 still the right dose anymore, but, um, you know, we're getting off track. But uh, our two recent guidelines, we had Western Trauma Association in 2020 and then uh, AAS, AAST, ACS, uh, COT 2022 published guidelines, and both of them recommend a new dose, an octoparin 40 milligrams Q12 for the majority of trauma patients. So, you know, finally after, so that's the longevity of this study. Like the same dose, like was, you know, being recommended, you know, everywhere for, you know, what is that, you know, like 25 years, 25, 26 25 years. years. Yeah. And, you know, when does that happen? Not, not very often. So, um, you know, that's just the impact of the study. But, you know, 30 milligrams Q12 didn't just go away. Um, we're still going to, we're still going to use it, especially for kind of our special populations, you know, um, so elderly patients, anybody above 65 patients with, you know, the so-so creatinine clearance of 30 to 60 and, uh, you know, uh, low total body weight, less than 50 kilograms. The recommended starting dose is still um, 30 milligrams Q12. And then also you have your unique populations within trauma. So spinal cord injury, TBIs, um, you know, the suggestion is to start them at 30 Q12 
as well because we just don't have the safety data with that higher dosing yet. Um, so maybe in the future that could change, but um, you know, for that population, you know, I I think it's good that they kind of singled them out and was like, you might want to start at 3212 still, and then and then monitor and adjust them there. Oh, I almost forgot the uh, the best part too. Obese patients. Um, this is where it gets a little bit muddier, I guess. Double uh, AST guidelines they suggest weight based dosing, so 0.5 mg per kg to 12 hours. Um, and they actually give a BMI threshold. The BMI threshold is 30. Um, so anyone above 30, you should, uh, or they recommend uh, to switch to a, a weight-based dosing of 0.5 mg per kg, T12. Western Trauma Association, they they agree with the weight-based dosing. Uh, they give a range of 0.5 to 0.6 mg per kg, T12, um, as an option. Um, but they don't really uh, comment on BMI thresholds like the AAST guidelines. They do suggest, the one suggestion that they do is on total body weight. Anybody above 100 kilograms uh, should start at least at 50 milligrams T12. So, yeah, I love that you highlighted all the different kind of dosing regimens for those different populations that you can see in trauma. I guess, you know, this study, right, we just talked about a mainstay for 20 plus years. We also know change in medicine is hard, right? Especially when you've been doing something the same way. So with the updated dosing and things, do we have a feel for what, what hospitals or other centers are doing across the country as it relates to trauma VTE prophylaxis? Uh, yeah. yeah, we do. Uh, thanks for asking the, the, the question. Um, uh, so sandwiched between the two guidelines being published, so 2020 and 2022, in 2021, um, our team at OMC, uh, led by our uh, former um, critical care uh, resident, Sydney McDeal, um, along with uh, a colleague at UF Health, uh, Shan, we actually performed a survey study uh, of critical care pharmacists on this very topic and trying to answer that question. Uh, essentially, we just you know, we definitely felt that practice varied significantly. When we first started talking about the survey, not even the first, you know, guideline had really come out um, yet, the WTA guidelines. So we were just wondering, what is everybody doing? Because, uh, you know, we were kind of struggling ourselves because there's all this data based on anti-10A monitoring of, you know, that 3212 is underdosing. But has anybody made that change? Has anybody been bold enough to do that? Um, what we found, and now this might be much better uh, now because it's two years later and, uh, you know, uh, AAST has also come out recommending a higher dose. But what we found was that two-thirds of trauma centers were still using 30 milligrams Q12 as their initial dose. Um, and most of the respondents came from level one academic centers. So... You know, these, these are, you know, clinicians that, uh, you know, know, know the data and know that, but, you know, we just hadn't made, and I'll even say, you know, myself, um, you know, we have, we didn't, uh, we didn't, uh, update our guidelines until, you know, kind of recently. So, um, that was kind of one thing that, that we found that was a little bit, uh, but not particularly shocking. 
Um, the other thing is that uh, we also report on obese patients. They were routinely given a larger dose, and guess what the larger dose was? 40 milligrams Q12. <laughs> um, but the most common threshold was BMI greater than or equal to 40. 78% of our respondents uh, didn't dose adjust from that 30 milligrams until BMI was above 40. And then and then it was, you know, and the dose adjustment was to 40. Only 3% of the institutions that responded were using a BMI of 30, which was recommended the following year in the AASP guidelines. Well, this is, yep, featured featured in the May Literature Review Series, the JACCP article. Um, yeah, I, I love that you highlighted it because this is great because this is also, right, it's, it's um, the guidelines say one thing, right, but it's very, in a, in a dynamic population like this that really very, can vary from center to center, it's cool to get kind of a picture of what, of what everyone is doing. Now, I got to say, I said this on the episode, I'm going to have to say to you, I need to talk to the one place that's got heparin as their preferred trauma VTE prophylaxis agent. The answer is 99% yeah. anoxaparin, and you got this one lowly center. So uh, open invitation, whoever that center is, come on. Got a couple questions for you. Um, but no, awesome awesome work from your from your Florida colleagues. Definitely check that out. Listen to that May episode. Um, Brandon, thanks so much for your time. Highlighting such a landmark, what this trial of the week series is kind of about, these really historical articles, still important. Um, reach out, let Brandon know what you thought, at uh, Winter Hog. And Brandon, appreciate your time, uh, effort, energy. I'm glad that you got past melting season, a.k.a. Florida in summer, and you, you were, were coasting through in September and into October. So take care. All right. Thanks a lot, Nick. Appreciate the invite, and it was a pleasure. Thanks again to uh, Brandon for all his insight. That was great. Uh, let me know your thoughts uh, as we go into October at pharmacy to dose uh, or pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, reference list with those guidelines and things, as always, is in the episode description. Website's coming. Give me just a little bit longer, team. It's going to be worth it, I promise. But until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.